Hi, well, Simon Brakesby here, and thanks for tuning in to this episode of In Conversations, where I have the privilege of interviewing some global educational thinkers to explore some complex ideas, understand how their own thinking is adjusted and shifted over time, and to get into some practical strategies and tactics that can help system and school leaders make better decisions in the context that they work in. And today, uh, I've got the great fortune of having a conversation with Richard Gerver. Uh, many of you might know of Richard's work uh, as the head teacher from Grange Primary School, where he led a pretty impressive transformation effort over about seven years. Now, Richard has now uh, moved beyond his time working only in a single school. He's been working over the last decade or so with both educational organisations and organisations and leaders in other sectors to explore more effective approaches to leadership, change and cultivating creativity. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation I had with Richard. Obviously, we're having this conversation about change at a pretty unique time uh, as we all seek to try to navigate the implications of COVID-19 both for the educational systems that we work in and in our own personal and family lives. I think you'll find that there's a lot of richness in our conversation as Richard explores uh, his own leadership journey and experiences, some of the ways he's tried to synthesize and sense make more effective approaches to change. And as we both reflect a little bit about how to best lead self, our organizations and our teams, uh, during the particular challenges we're facing during this period of pandemic. So please enjoy this conversation. Richard Gerver. Well, hello, Richard Gerver. Thanks for making some time to catch up. Uh, it's been a while since we were last together, I think. Uh, we were fortunate to be working with some Canadian school leaders uh, a little bit earlier last year, uh, and it's a different environment right now that we're all living in. So. Um, so great to catch up. And how are you? How are things? Yeah, good. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Context is everything. I mean, sitting there drinking a cold beer with loads of other educators and like-minded people at the time seemed great, but nothing spectacular. Now, what I'd give just to be with one other person outside of my household, right? And um, I'm sure the others in your household are probably feeling the same, right? <laughs> Oh, trust me, they're all frontline key workers. They're all leaving the house regularly. They, I think they've put themselves in harm's way just to get away from it. That's, that's, how, strong, that's how strong they feel about it. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's like for everybody, right? I think the things that, the phases we've been through and, and all of the stuff, and, and now we're in this point where we're thinking, if only we knew when it ended and how it ended, we could start yeah. to feel different. And we're all like that, right? And so... I'm the same as everybody else, just trying to calibrate and recalibrate almost on a, maybe even an hourly, not even a daily basis. But at the same time, you know, one of the really interesting things, and, and it seems weird talking about gifts at time like, mm. times like this, but one of the things for me, and, and I know for you and for, for everybody that works really pretty much full on, for a lot of us right now outside of key workers, um, to an extent, seconds have become minutes minutes have become hours and hours have become days right and and actually that's given us something we'll probably never have again which is a sustained period of time to reflect and think so there's a kind of seesaw thing going on i guess 
So it's, it's, it's an interesting context, isn't it, mate, that we are going to have this conversation about change, which I know is something that you've thought a lot about as a, as a teacher, as a school leader, uh, as a writer, and as a supporter of organizations, both in education and outside. And uh, here we are, and change is such an important topic anyway for educational leaders, and yet we have this different context around change. And I kind of want to explore uh, change with you. And obviously within the context of COVID-19 and the incredible adaptation and shifts that educators are leading their organizations and teams through. But can you backtrack just a little bit and give us a quick couple of headlines of, I guess, your own career and experiences that have particularly shaped your views and thinking about, you know, how you think about change? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I started off as a um, primary school teacher in uh, the very start of the 1990s, which was uh, pre the national curriculum in the UK, pre inspections, pretty much, you know, go and do what you fancy with your kids. I even I remember I remember working with a teacher who was my co-teacher in my first year. Yeah. Uh, she Hillary. Hillary, her name was. She was brilliant. Um, I mean, many things impressed me about Hillary, particularly her bouffant hair at seven o'clock in the morning was a thing of sculptural genius. But she was one of those, and everyone who's ever worked in school will know who I mean. She is one of those ethereal old school teachers, right? And I remember her saying to me um, on, I must have been my first or second day in the school when we were going in pre-first uh, term just to prepare everything. She said, uh, and I said, oh, do you want to share planning? And she said, well, if it helps, dear. Yeah. And I, I said, uh, well, I've done some maths planning. Do you want to have a look? I'd really like to know what you think. She said, no, I, I don't teach maths, dear. Um, Mr. <laughs> Smith, who teaches the class after me next year, is so good at maths. I don't bother with maths, dear. <laughs> and it turned out she used to spend the entire year teaching the children about the places she'd been on vacation, right? So that was pre... So that was <laughs> the first seismic shift I lived through in education was actually the rigour of a grit. But fast forward, I became... A, I became a, a head teacher at the very start of the new um, millennium and took over. Which part, a, of, which part a, of England was in that? Was that happening? Right in the middle, in, yeah. in, on the border of Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire, big primary school, about 450 children. Um, I didn't get it because I was talented. I got it because I was the only candidate. And they, really, <laughs> they were thankful for anything breathing. Um, you'll do, come in. And um, <laughs> They, I got the job, and the reason I was the only candidate was because the school was considered to be so bad, the government here were considering shutting it down uh, and then relaunching it. Either shut it down, it. or we'll give this guy a go, and then we'll shut yeah. it. Well, I, I, I think that was more it. I thought they thought this guy's so innocuous, we'll just let him mark time for the 18 months while we keep these kids in place yeah. before we decide how we're going to shut it down and relaunch it. Um, and then we'll proper, put a proper school principal in place. Mm. Anyway. Over the um, seven years that followed, the school went through a remarkable transformation. I mean, amazing people were mm. there. It's why I fell in love with the place, right? It was one of those communities that was dormant. Amazing, pardon me, kids, amazing staff, fab community. They just wanted a good school, but didn't know how to go about getting one. Mm -hmm. And so over the seven years, we activated incredible programs of change, which people can find out about online yeah i mean over the last decade or so you know i've loved you know listening in hearing the stories uh reading up on the work that you've done uh, <laughs> over the time it, you know it really is you know one of those standout school transformation stories and as you said there's untapped potential uh that was there in community uh and with the right leadership 
uh, and approaches and team, uh, you move things things pretty rapidly, actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the school went from being in the bottom 5% to top 5% in 18 months. Um, And that was just on academic outcome. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, but the interesting thing, that's really where my whole stuff around change began, I guess, you know, living through that experience. And and I'm sure a lot of people will share this. When you're in an experience, Mm. you just think it's what you do, right? You don't, and, and particularly if it's either remarkable or the opposite of that, you know, whatever you're living through, you go in every day, you do the job you're paid to do. You think you do it to the best of your ability and you reckon everybody else must be doing the same thing. So we were living through this experience, which, which lasted for me for, for just over seven years. Um, and, and progressively because of the nature of what the school had become, people wanted more and more from outside to learn about what we were doing. And that forced me, I guess, to start to reflect and think more strategically about, okay, what are the generic learnings from what we've Mm. done here? Um, And so I was doing more and more of of that. Um, And it did get to a point after seven years where (laughs) my wife and and my mentor, Ken Robinson, staged an intervention with me. um, And they sat me down one night over dinner. And I think they must have planned it. That is uh, a powerful (laughs) pair. (laughs) Oh, my God. Your wife and Sir Ken. Yeah, trust me, my wife makes Sir Ken look like a, a pussycat, really. But yeah, no, you're right. And, and you know, when, when those two are talking at you over dinner, um, you listen. Mm. And um, my wife was saying rightly, you know, Richard, you spend so much time either trying to do your job or traveling, telling other people about the job you're doing. We never see you. You're working, you know, seven days a week and more if you've got it. Um, and Ken was sat there going, you know, you've got things to share that are really important. And I want you to come out and share them full time. And I was like, because there's another big moment of change personally for me. You know, there I was in a really successful school, a job I adored mm. working with a community. I, I, it was more than I loved that community. Um, and then just purely fiscally, you know, I had a great salary and a pension that was accruing nicely. <laughs> and all of a sudden... <laughs> At just, you know, uh, I was being told, you know, she, give it all up. It'll be fine. Just give up all of that. And, and the thing is, if it hadn't have been Ken Robinson and my wife, I think I would have procrastinated and stayed in the job I love. But Ken was going, I'll help you. And when Ken Robinson says, I'll help you, and you've got important things to yeah. say, you kind of think, okay. And my wife turned around to me and said, probably the most powerful thing anyone's, uh, and it was a real act of love for all kinds yeah. of reasons. She said, you've spent the last 20 years telling kids to seize opportunities and take risks. Are you going to be a hypocrite? And that was like, Oh my Jeez. God. I bet and I she thought, prepared you know, that line. Oh, she landed she it. Comes she, out with a, yeah, she just, she'd been in the mirror and cause she got it like De Niro perfect. You know, it was like, perfect. and, um, she was right. And, and the act of love came from the fact that while she had a job, she's a school principal, mm. you know, to, to take that risk as a family unit with young kids, just on her part, she must've taken huge, con- and, and Ken had the confidence to believe. So anyway, we can unpick some of the, the well, I think it's interesting though, so- like Richard, cause so many leaders who lead and a successful transformation they're so in the work, like you were saying before, that they often don't have time to sense make the work, like to, to draw out the principles. And it's when other people start asking them to share it where they say, well, 
you know, it's, it's, it's very um, intuitive, it's adaptive expertise. It's, and so they have to sense make, put language around it, theorize a little bit about it. And you were kind of doing that at both, you know, in the work and sharing the work. And then, you know, I think it's interesting that as you took, you know, the difficult decision to at that point, step out of that full-time headship role and into thinking about uh, working on the system with leaders, both in education and in business, that there's a chance there to kind of synthesize and sense make over time. What do you think about this work mm -hmm. of leading change, experiencing change? Um, and I, I, I think you're right. I think there are two things there. I think the first is that thing about being in it is, is incredibly powerful and we have to find time, right? And, mm. you know, we'll talk about all kinds of things now and, and we touched on this idea of the minutes and seconds and hours and all this stuff. One of the things we have to find, one of the great gifts I've had, I'm no more talented or knowledgeable than any other school leader in the world. The difference mm. is for a variety of reasons, I've been gifted time and I've been gifted the people to interrogate my process, which has allowed me mm. to crystallize and understand what we all do every day, um, both good and bad. And then the, the next thing about that for me was I really began to thrive and understand what, I, what processes I'd been involved in when I'd left the school and start, started to step into other contexts. You know, as you, as you um, touched on over the last 13 years, I've worked in a whole range of different, di massively diverse settings across a whole range of, of different organizations and cultures. And actually, what that does is two things. One, it gives you new thinking, new ideas, yeah. it gets you, but, but most importantly, it stimulates the opportunity to interrogate your own process against increasingly diverse uh, environments, which actually adds even more rigor to, to, to what you originally distilled, mm -hmm. right? And, and so for me, what I've learned now, like, and you know, you know it, it's a throwaway line, but it's so true. I would be a very different school leader now to the one I would have been when I started Grange at the beginning of the morning. Not better or worse, but different. And that mm -hmm. would have been based on the incredible opportunity I've had to reflect upon, challenge, learn, um, assimilate all of those experiences based on my core philosophy. My core philosophy has never changed and it wouldn't. Um, the instinctive things I think that made me the leader I was would still be at mm -hmm. the core of everything I do. But that broadened context yeah. has been the greatest gift, really. So what do you think? Like if you, you think 13 years ago, Richard, to let's at least do uh, pre-COVID, Richard, uh, and, and the, the new <laughs> context of new learning and rigor testing of our thinking. What are some of the areas where you might have said, say to use the Harvard visible um, thinking routine, you know, I used to think this and now I think this, or, you know, where have there been some shifts, do you think, in the way that you would go about thinking about change or the tactics and strategies you'd, you'd be deploying as you think about leading some sort of innovation and change within a school organizational context? I think when I was younger, when I became a school principal, and maybe it was right time. You still look very young, Richard. Come on. Bless you, Simon. Bless you. It's why I'm happy to talk to you whenever you want, honestly. <laughs> I'm on the um, payroll with you, mate. You know, just keep the retainer payments going. And I'll... Somebody has So when you were younger um, than you look yeah, already. When yeah. I was younger, when I was younger. I mean, obviously, I'm Benjamin Buffness, but when I was younger. This is um, off, the, off, off topic, but just... 
I, I know, you know, I've talked off before about Zoom backgrounds, which is good, but when can we just like upgrade our actual faces on Zoom? That would be good as well. Oh. You could just choose, oh, now, yeah. take yeah, off yeah. the decade, add this kind of summer tan, uh, a change, yeah. like, you know, you've always outbearded me and I have a lot of beard envy, but you know, you could, you know, add a little bit more here or yeah. whatever else. Ouch. Ouch. Yeah. No, I, I just, I just superimpose Clooney. I'd download load a virtual Clooney for, I don't know, $25 and that would be it. Um, okay. So younger <laughs> Richard thinking of that change. Yeah, younger Richard. Um, I, I think it's an evolution of maturity. Um, I honestly believed I had to be the light bulb at the center of the universe. And maybe I did at first, when I first arrived at Grange, you need, the, the school needed some light. It needed yeah, well, some vision. It needed some activation energy. Some, it needed right? something yeah, yeah. to move. But I think the thing I've learned since, and, and actually it's always important, I think, to challenge. And by the way, this is slightly off topic. One of the things I think I've learned most in the last 13 years is to be a really great leader and somebody who's capable of leading change, you have to constantly self-analyze. Um, you have to realize that the person you have to reflect on most is yourself, your own actions, your own behaviors, challenge your own thinking. People who are, for me, who are really successful leaders, and it's almost like a, it's almost like a curse, right? They mm -hmm. are constantly self-analyzing self-reflecting not in a negative way teachers sure. are, are do that all the time right but really constructively constantly challenging thinking and, and being open in your own mind to development and i think that's the point for me that when i was a young leader younger leader um i mean i went into that job let's be clear with two very dangerous characteristics because i was very young to be a school principal in the uk at that time i was just 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 turned uh, just gone 30 um, that the first thing was I was arrogant. I truly believed that I was right, you know, in the way that most young people are. And also I was ignorant because I had no idea of the consequences if I got it wrong. That now, is I think a dangerous function. Right? I mean, absolutely. And, and we're seeing it right now in America with the president, right? Because even in his, in his late 70s, he's still not grown up from that mix of arrogance and ignorance, which is real. Anyway, another story. But I think that the thing for me was that I believed that I had to be the energy of all the change, of all of the innovation, all of the ideas. And when I look back now, what I would definitely have done differently is created a, I would have been more explicit about developing a context for a more collegiate climate mm. of that change that actually the light bulb at different times could be different people. The energy could be, the, the drive could come from different people, different groups of people. And so I don't think I was terribly good and effective at that. Mm -hmm. I wasn't good at creating a sustainable culture of change and, and, and development that was owned in a more democratic sense by the people I worked with. Um, so I think that's a real challenge yeah. for us because as school leaders, you know, we always feel this kind of sense of, I have to be proving my pay grade. I have to be proving my worth. I have to take everything on myself. I have to be mm. at the, mm. the core of everything. And, and I think that the really true thing for me is that what I've learned over years is that great leadership is about serving the people who work with you and for you. And I think my context for that's grown. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. I want to go back to that um, original point and pick up these two ideas, but you know, this idea of kind of mostly reflecting on self 
you know, I think in, in conversations I have around school leadership, you know, tables and meetings, so often we think about leading a change journey. So often we'll spend all this time about why are certain people not on board? What's, what's up with them? Why can't they uh, get on with this or respond the way we need them to? Um, and, you know, this idea of, yes, of course, th there needs to be some sort of empathetic analysis of kind of why things aren't moving, but constantly coming back to sort of thinking, well, where am I as an actor in this change system? And the first place to come back to for analysis and reflection is sort of this idea of, well, what role might I be playing in this? How, how might I be uh, needing to reflect on my own actions and my own behaviours and that kind of starting in and out, um, you know, I, I think takes a while to move away from always just talking about what others aren't doing. Why aren't others acting in the way that I need them to act or I would act if I was them? And that very external analysis. I think that's a, a really um, interesting point. It's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because I think it's something that actually is in any really great educator mm. possesses that. Because when you think about it, you know, great educators are constantly refining their way of communicating with their students. So that a really good educator doesn't just expect universally all of their students to come to them. Yeah. A really great educator looks at the individual children. We assess why a child's behaving the way they are, why they may be not comprehending or understanding or taking a concept sure. in the way we expect them to. Mm. And of course, really great educators then go back to themselves first and go, okay, so how do I alter my behavior to make that matter? And what's really interesting sometimes is I think when we move from the classroom, those of us that decide to do it, mm. into leadership roles in our schools, yeah. start to think it's a different art form. And actually for me, what we, what we need to be able to do is reflect on what it was that made us great teachers and reflect on those skills and say, okay, how do I deploy exactly those same skills with the person, the, now the, the bigger classroom, you know, the adults and colleagues I have, because we kind of think it's some mystic transformation. And for me, it isn't, you know, I've always contested that the really, really great educators could lead any organization in the world. Mm. Um, and because they are experts, at that human interaction, that shit, reading the emotional landscape around them and adapting. Um, and I think sometimes the pressure on us as leaders, the label, is that we, ex we think everyone expects us to have everything in our fingertips, right? Yeah. And, and I think vulnerability is one of the most powerful qualities of a leader. Mm. And so too of a teacher. I, I, think, I love this idea of actually sometimes the transition between teacher, teacher, leader up into middle management headship, sort of there's the teaching game and then there's the leading game. And you're actually saying, well, actually, no, at a, at a more meta level, actually the work of uh, moving through this teaching, learning, reflection cycles is at the core of great teaching. And so too, it's the core of great leading. You know, even your point before about, you know, working out when you needed to be at the center, at the real drive, and when it was time to sort of potentially not always see yourself as the core driving energy uh, that everything was rotating around. In, in similar ways, sometimes early on in a class, you know, there's that set early in a year or maybe a, a class that's not quite gelling. The teacher does sort of have to step forward into that and take some ownership and get the activation energy up, but then quickly make sure they're not becoming the sun in that galaxy of learning. Like they, they can't be, you know, in that solar system, you know, they can't be that center that everything else is spinning around. There's got to then be this transition of ownership and, uh, and, and shared work with the class. 
uh, and clearly a, a similar type process sometimes has to happen in a school transformation journey. Uh, and I think there's, there's probably some, you know, difficult decisions about when the leader moves forward and spends a bit more time in driving it and taking responsibility and being, uh, you know, the core energy within it. And then when to choose to move back a little bit, distribute teams in and, and bring about that sustainability outside of your own personality and, and charisma and drive. And I think, you know, I think that's absolutely right. And it was when, in all seriousness, when I started to reflect very seriously about, am I ready to move on from mm. this school? Am I ready to take this step? You know, for all the things that Ken and, and my wife, Lynn, had said to me. Um, I think that was the point at which I really started to self-analyze and, and realize that in some ways, and I don't know that it was, it wasn't that I necessarily didn't have the skills, but it certainly, and I'm going to be brutally honest here, I'm not sure I had the desire mm. to be um, a leader, an embedding leader. I think it's a different skill set. Many really skilled leaders can do both, right? They can be the light in the room yeah. and they can be the person that then creates a very sustainable systemic process that embeds deeply. Um, and, and for whatever reason, I knew that I was in serious danger of starting to ask my community to innovate for my own sake, for my own enjoyment, for my own entertainment. And, and whether it was lack of skill or lack of desire or all of those things, right? The, the, the thing for me was, in fact, that was the clincher. I knew it was time for me to leave because I was so attracted by something new, the opportunity to be innovative, to be at yeah. the, the danger zone again, um, that that seduced me. And, and I knew that if the, the trade-off would have been, okay, if I choose to stay at Grange, A, I'm not 100% sure my whole heart would still be in it. And it yeah. was during that seven years. And B... I think I would have been making decisions based on my own entertainment rather than what was objectively right for my community. <laughs> I you think know? That's a big, and, sometimes you see it, right? The leader who stays on, a lot of the core work is done. And then there's a lot of entering programs, doing certain things, which is about keeping the leader's interest because the school's actually exactly. in a good spot. <laughs> and you see it in so many contexts, you know. I mean, the number of times I've worked in corporations where they've had change fatigue because what you have are new managers, middle managers, leaders coming into an organization. Often there's quite a high churn at CEO level at major corporations, right? And each one of those CEOs wants to come into their role, make a mark, do their thing, innovate based on their own interests and belief and values rather than the company's interests and values. And it leaves your team absolutely a exhausted and deeply cynical. Um, and I think that can happen too in education where you know, the, the, the expression I use often is we've got to be very careful as education leaders when we're out on, on we go to conferences or workshops or whatever, that we don't become conference whores. In other words, we don't go become addicted to hearing the latest new the thing. Next, we next. get so excited yeah. to go back into school and go, right, next, boom. Um, because I think actually that's had a very damaging impact on educators and, and school communities over many, many years. Because I think that now, one of the instinctive, one of the reflexive things we feel when we're asked to change or told we're gonna go through a change process is, oh my God, not again. So that mixture of cynicism, of anger, of the belief, and actually this for me is one of the core things around change. That when people hear change, they don't hear change at all. What they hear is, we're going to be made to work harder. 
Mm. Um, this is going to mean more work. This is going to add to our workload, add to our stress levels. Um, you know, because it, it, so much of what happens in education around change controversially, particularly the top-down stuff, is actually yeah. not based on change at all. It's based on becoming more efficient. And there are two very different things between the way we perceive a drive towards efficiency, which is very much a kind of Taylorist vision of mm. in, in dust, the industrial age, versus the idea that change should be in somehow linked to innovation and development. And, and, you know, we were talking before we started recording this idea in many ways that then leads down to the way I distill it is the difference between reactive change and proactive change. Okay. Right. So we spend most of our lives uh, experiencing change at a reactive level. And, and what I mean by that is it tends to always end up being more, fo more focused on actually doing what we've always done, but more efficiently. Yeah. And, and that just isn't exciting. It's deeply exhausting. It's dangerous because it's ripe for the quick fix strategy and system. It's ripe for that. Oh, here's another idea of how we can make literacy work more effectively or numeracy or whatever else it is, right? Here's the latest thing. Yeah, without and, any and analysis of why the yeah. thing before may not have worked and why or, we or think any, this new yeah. thing is somehow or any got contextual enough. Understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Or any contextual understanding to understand our unique context and go, okay, would it yeah. work for us? And if it's going to work for us, how do we adapt it to make it work for us, right? Yeah. Um, and actually, one of the really interesting things is when people are engaged in proactive change, there's a very mm -hmm. different perception about it. So if you go to some of the world's really innovative organizations, right? And I'm not talking morally how we feel about those organizations, just, just those innovation hubs of innovation, places like Google or Apple or, you know, the new tech businesses or Dyson or play, what, what's really interesting there is the culture isn't about reacting. It's not about somebody on high delivering. It's genuinely about a collegiate uh, approach to ideation. And my yeah. favorite example is Pixar, right? Mm -hmm. where from the very fabric and design of the building, where when Jobs uh, and, and Lasseter redesigned the Pixar offices, they put a massive great atrium at the hub. People can see it online. It's, it's fabulous stuff. And there are documentaries about it. But what they did was they created this social space at the hub of everything because they wanted to force people to come together. And they wanted to force people to come together because they just wanted them to share their experiences and ideas with each other. And yeah. then harvest those ideas and grow them upwards rather than um, implement them downwards, right? And so when you talk to people who work in an organization like Pixar, nobody leaves and everybody loves it. And everybody describes it as the most exciting dynamic mm. environment to be in. Because that change doesn't feel it's being done to you. And they're not, they're not going, we've got to make Toy Story 4, make it happen. Yeah. Right? What's happening is it's coming the other way and make it exactly the same as Toy Story 3, but better. Right? It comes yeah. from a different It's so place. different, isn't it, to like the dominant models of educational change, particularly system change. You know, you think about, you're describing something where someone's creating an environmental context for ideas to interact, to form... And then as they kind of form and germinate, they get moved up and they're sort of up and then they get enabled to you know, make that happen. And if we think about all sorts of diagrams of educational system change and delivery, they're always drawn as someone up here making decision, arrow through implementation, 
you down there, make sure you deliver your bit with fidelity. And if you don't, and the data doesn't change, I'm sure it's your fault, not my original plan up on this end. And you know, the, yeah. the, even though that's more system, there's no doubt as well that part of that kind of the way of working around change then can seep down into how, you know, those of us who are in school leadership roles uh, and others think about, well, how do I get change done? I get the, I come up with the answer and then I try to get everyone to buy in and implement uh, rather than you're talking about more of an organic process. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, two things you said there, I think that really important. One is time, you know, mm. change cultural shift and change takes time. You can't do it. You know, this idea that, okay, so when we've got to have that implemented by August, we've got to have that implemented by January, right? You can't impose, you can bring the rigor in later. Yeah. You can't impose that as, as, a, as, a, as a point of connection at point one, because that means it, the process becomes artificial. And the sure. second thing for me is the fear of failure that pervades education at every level that, change is messy and it should be because any form of um any form of investigation any form of research is messy yet we seem to perceive research as clean at any you know it's clean. i mean let's just look at covid right where we've got people who are outside of the scientific community going yeah but when will there be a vaccine yeah well what will that vaccine yeah. look like and when will there be a prophylactic and what will that prophylactic look like and the scientists are kind of going well we're about we reckon we've got 80 percent certainty of this but there's a whole lot of things we need to yeah, yeah. but when and of course the scientists go we can't tell you right and that to me is a perfect example of what really great innovation looks like you know yeah. you cannot turn around to those scientists and say we need a workable vaccine by september the first you might have a vaccine but it sure. might not work it might have loads of flaws and it might collapse within weeks right so one of the things we need to learn lessons from is the perception that research somehow is clean and it's always correct and yeah. actually change isn't like that and the real the one of the real powers for me and, and one of the real challenges is the confidence for leadership to have that change is messy, we need to allow failure because actually it's at those moments of failure that we learn the most. That's mm -hmm. when we actually develop our model better. That's when we learn and build and, and strengthen. Yeah, um, yeah I think know, it's a bit know, like- Well, is it like there's, there's no one ever does a media release about the scientific lab that had another failure this week, right? Or <laughs> exactly. when I was doing my doctorate work in the UK and I'd have friends in chemistry or whatever else and say, so how did the PhD finish up? And they say, well, basically I've done four years to say, hey guys, don't do this again. It didn't work, right? <laughs> And in science, they call that data and they publish stuff. Like they say, this didn't work. Um, yeah. And I like this idea sometimes of, of change in, in complex and people filled institutions of leaders of that. Look, I'm an ex high school science teacher. So I think about hypothesis testing, like I've got a kind of hunch or an idea. It's thought out about what I want to do. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go out into the world. I'm going to test that idea and uh, I'm going to get some early, you know, evidence and feedback about not whether it worked or not, but what's kind of working, what's not kind of working. And then I'm going to reflect on that and I'll take the next step. And as you say, it's not linear, it's, it's messy, it's iterative. Sometimes you work for a while, you get a lot of, you know, um, uh, things that you're doing that aren't working out. And then suddenly you crack something that works and you get this sort of punctuated equilibrium where you can take off at a rate. Yeah. Uh, 
as sometimes I say to leaders in, in our network, I say, you've got to fall in love with the human messiness of this process. You have uh, to love the process more than getting to the final outcome. Yeah. And if you can fall in love with the process of this, this human complex messiness, um, that'll mean that you, you can enjoy all the ups and downs of, of, this pro, of this work. But if you're stressed about hitting the target, the final number, uh, you know, yeah. I, I just think it, it lands people in a state of real fragility because then they're always I, worried about the next data set coming out. Uh, they're always worried, and, and did, what, I, did I get the growth I need yeah. to? Rather than saying, well, did we learn? Did we learn from experience? Were we making good, good bets on our change based on evidence of our understanding of context? And if so, then, you know, like a scientific team, you, you can't ask much more. And I think what that leads to also is a hyper-anxiety around control. So what then tends to happen oh, in good. our school communities, yeah. right, is we, we fall back into believing we have to have the finished polished model before we even try it out, right? That's, yeah. that's, I mean, that's crazy. And, and, but that's often par that's paralyzing around change, you know, because it leads to two things. I understand why. A, we, we drive for a consensus. We've got to have everyone on board before we even start the journey. And human nature tells you that's never going to happen, right? And, and that's part of the messiness. You have to trust, and I can't believe I'm going to use this analogy in the times we're living in now, but you have to trust the contagion model, right? Sure. You have to allow the people that are the ones that get it and are really excited about it to activate. And then as that process grows, people, people come on board. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the things we have to be more confident about as leaders in schools is do not believe you have to perfect something before you start to evolve it, right? They do. They, they're, they're, uh, you know, as someone who spends a lot more time in kind of system and policy work now, um, I don't know what I did wrong in life to do more of that <laughs> stuff, but it's fascinating. And what I've seen in all the systems is over the last half decade or so, yeah, the systems are now providing the public schools with, uh, they'll say something like, oh, we're being um, open on the what, but firm on the how. It's been this kind of phrase. It sounds good, doesn't it? But then yeah. what it means is they're being very prescriptive of the planning processes that leaders need to kind of go through. And um, they're moving to often four or three year planning processes where people have to, at the front end, articulate what am I going to do? How am I going to do it? How will I know if it's working? And get this even, you know, map out milestones years, years out about where they'll be up to. And so there is this, uh, there is this pressure about know where you're going to be exactly in the future on certain outcomes. Know exactly from the outset um, the strategies that you'll use in the process. And it's almost a kind of mathematical linear kind of it, it, like, like it's a complicated problem that if you just thought hard enough about it, you could map out the whole answer and then just implement with fidelity. And I think probably where my change, you know, thinking has shifted the most is this idea of, you know, deeply understanding we're not solving complicated kind of mathematical type bridge building problems in education. Like we're doing the human complex work of serving a community through human development. And so suddenly that is something that you, you can think deeply about. You shouldn't be blasé about it. You can have good, strong views about where you might want to go on a horizon of 50 days, one year and four years. But the journey is going to be iterative and organic and you're going to have to start before you're ready. And a lot of the mm -hmm. things you thought you would, that you knew, 
probably in your journey, in, in your transformation journey at the Grange and others, you realize a little bit later, the things you knew for sure don't end up being true. And a lot of the things you needed to know, actually you couldn't find out until you're into the work and you know, action precedes clarity in this stuff. Yeah. And so sometimes I've got to say to leaders, could you just put the plan down? And they're like, oh, I've got, I'm saying, because what, what you've got there is what I call template thinking. You filled out the template and that's great. And the system will sign off on that. But you don't have a working mental model about where you and your team think you're heading and how such that, you know, I, I'm, I'm picking up in the conversation, the way that you describe science, the way you describe good responsive teaching is this iterative learning in the world, doing something, checking how it works, updating both what we do and how we think about what we do. And, you know, if I think about what we're trying to do in our networks of leaders, it's kind of this liberation of get out of template thinking, not into the kind of freedom of maybe the early nineties that you described in curriculum. <laughs> it's not a license to be like, trust me, I'm a professional, but, but trust me to use a robust, um, thoughtful and robust method of learning by doing as a team. But don't tell me after six months when I want to update my strategies on my plan that, oh, you know, you didn't think it through enough. No, the fact that I'm updating it is a signal that I am thinking it through just like a program or scope and work, a uh, scope of teaching. You know, you want to see people scribbling all over that program and adjusting it over time. Cause that's the signal of thinking. Yeah. I don't know, but I do think as systems have got more agitated about measurable improvement as they brought forward the timeline of that, I think one of the things that's precipitating is some, these unhelpful ways of thinking and pressures around change, which, you know, to use your language is resulting in more control, you know, control type behaviors. And, and stress, right? Because what's, what's then happening is mm. we're trying to, we're trying to hyper, I mean, a, a great example that, that we'll talk about that's relevant in our context now, but hopefully if people are watching this down the track, they'll, they'll mm. understand, you know, right now. So for example, We've got schools around the world in dialogue with policymakers about how do we reopen our schools? How do we get our kids back yeah, into it? We're education? definitely having that conversation what, here in Australia right, right now. What does that look like? And, and what's happening at the moment is, and I understand why, an instinctive belief that we've got to perfect that return to school system before yep. our kids return to school. Sure. And what I know, what I know is that within an hour of our gates opening, not necessarily incrementally, but to all our kids, when our community comes back online, whenever that is to, for all our students, right? That plan is going to go in the bin within an hour because all of the things we thought we knew and all of the things we thought we were going to have to do yeah. will become irrelevant based on the experiences we're having in that moment. And so for me, one of the interesting things we have to do, I think right now is not create the system, it's make sure we have the questions to interrogate our process against as we develop it, right? Yeah. So one of the things I've always believed in, which I think work in any context in our schools, is three questions. Do I understand the needs of my children? Am I meeting the needs of my children? How do I prove that I'm meeting the needs mm. of my children? 
right? And for me, that's what I'd be doing right now. I would be starting on question one. What are gonna, I would be doing the research into my school community, every child in that community. And I know schools are doing an unbelievable job in staying connected where they can with their kids, right? But that's the research base, right? Do I really understand what our children are living through now? What yeah. kind of, what shape are those kids going to come back in? The ones that have experienced loss, the ones that maybe have experienced a family where their entire life has changed because of economics and, and a job loss, whether some of those kids are loving the, the, the opportunities yeah. they've had to free range their brains because there will be those kids. The kids have been environments where they on the flip side have experienced an abusive house anyway, but mm. in more intensity. Um, and all of those things together, right? We can't second guess that. And we can't second guess how each and every one of those children are going to respond. And on top of that, we can't second guess how our teachers and teaching assistants and admin staff on return oh. are going to feel and the context of the orbit they've been living in too, right? So if we try and create a step-by-step, -step, we're going to do this in hour one, this on day two, this on day three, this, it's going to go in the bin. What we have to start doing is asking the right questions and yeah. then interrogate our process as we go along and be prepared to adapt and innovate. We've got to have space. And so, the, you know, in, in my work, I've often used the, the concept of agility or staying agile, you know, in this. And really, mm. I see that as uh, intelligent response to the situation you're in. Like that's, agility is not just speed, you know. Yes, yeah, yeah. it's responsiveness, but it's also situational awareness. And it's this combination of I know where I am and then I'm responding to that. And, you know, when you apply this to plan, some, one of the ways to liberate yourself, I think, is to um, do uh, lower resolution plans. So, like, you want a, a loose architecture. If you get down to too much detail, high resolution plans, it's very hard to kind of learn in and through the doing. And so, you know, what are the big bits that we put in? Then you get into the work. And then as you get into the work, uh, you're able to restructure first and then you can go into the detail. I heard uh, another way of describing this is kind of chainsaw before scalpel. And I, I like <laughs> this idea of like cut the big bits out right now, but some of us, when the school hasn't even st started back or another change to it, we want to get right down to the detail when actually you can't in complex human organizations get down to some of that detail until you get into it. Um, yeah. And being okay with that ambiguity, I think is less about feeling like you're smart enough to know the answer, but saying I've got the systems of learning as a team that we can learn our way into a, an optimized answer quicker because we're getting these feedback loops. Right. And, and trust, right. Trust is at the heart of that. Mm. To, you know, having, having trust in your community to do that. You know, when you look at, you look at one of the great challenges in elite sport, um, is not something I've had much personal experience actually. No, and I'm nor, still waiting for my, my, my rugby career to take off, but um, maybe in the next decade. <laughs> but yeah, but when you look at it, you know, what you see one of the great challenges in elite sport around coaching over the last 30 or 40 years, and in some sports it's moved quicker than others, is an over reliance on the coach yeah. to problem solve, right? So there is a lack of trust off the bad coaches, and this is at every I level, like but that. you see yeah. it at elite level, right? Bad coaches do not trust their players to do, to, to, to do the right thing on the pitch, right? So they over-engineer, they over-manage. What that does, of course, is it removes the confidence in the team on the pitch because they then 
are wholly reliant in yeah. the coach, but that comes from a lack of trust. And then, of course, as soon as there's a problem in the middle of the field of play during a game, the coach can do nothing. But the players are stood there going, well, coach, what are we supposed to do now? And the whole thing falls apart. And that stems from trust, right? Yeah. Um, and, and in elite sport, the greatest coaches, when you, you talk to them and you talk to the people that have played for them, the first thing they say is, well, she trusted us. He trusted yeah. us. Um, yeah. and, and trusted and that, the decisions that's where... they were making and that they made exactly. the right call at the right time. Um, yeah. And I, if it I... went wrong, we'll review it later. Yeah. But we've got to allow the players, the team. Exactly. It's very, like, when you think about agile teams, one of the things is, like, empowered autonomous teams. Like, part of an agile transformation when you're thinking about an organizational agility is about the teams that feel like they really are backed to, to give it a go, to find answers, not, you know, given some autonomy, but basically managed by targets and delivery chains mm -hmm. and the rest of it, like, proper. And, you know, I think one of the little experiments that's being run by right now uh, because so many teachers are working remotely and middle-level leaders are working remotely and others, you know, if you like, coach isn't around as much, you know, walking the corridors and other things. And I think I'm seeing incredible levels of innovation and uh, ways of working as people have kind of looked to the left, looked to the right and thought, here I am, I'm, I'm home. I might be teaching from home, leading from home. Hey, how about I try this? How about I do this? How about I, we mix up the way of working in this way? And you know, I think that's been a really interesting thing to watch, the forced structural shift of remote schooling, not so much just for the students, but for the educators and for those who've experienced trust and autonomy. And well, I mean, I know I, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go. Yeah, no, I was going to say, you know, for me, that, that rounds off, I mean, it, it's a perfect highlight because we have tended to operate top down, right, which yeah. is very much about what I call the assumption of incompetence. And that's true of most traditional organizations. And education has been very traditionally set up. So from policymakers down, right, we assume incompetence, that our school leaders are incompetent, our yeah. teachers are incompetent, our students are incompetent. So what that leads to is a hyper-managed, hyper-routine environment, right, which is what a traditional school has felt like. What's happened because of COVID is a lot of those shackles have been broken and not as a conscious decision, but we've had to move away from the hyper-controlled environment mm. of the assumption of incompetence to one where we assume excellence because teachers have had the freedom. And what we've seen, and one of the galvanizing things we need to remember as the world returns to whatever shape it returns to yes. next, right, is the vast majority of teachers when they've been asked to step up to the plate and innovate and develop new ways of working, whether it's with individual students, with groups, whether it's online or through human relationship over a phone or whatever else it is, right? They have been exceptional because they've been asking the right questions. They've understood yeah. the problems and challenges and they've responded to them. And no doubt the way a teacher was teaching four or five weeks ago at the start of lockdown has evolved since sure. because they've been through that process of research and development. So one of the things I think we have to have greater confidence in, as and when the world gets back to any kind of, of system, yeah. we have to remember that our teachers and our school communities and our kids, by the way, I mean, how incredibly resilient and adaptive have they been? And of course, in Australia, 
you kind of had a, a horrific warm-up to this with the bushfires yeah. and the school yeah, communities that were impacted. Yeah. yeah, like, I'm sorry, again, my analogies are really bad, but you know what I mean, right? Yeah. This was, it was like a preparation. And, and what we've seen exhibited during that is we need to assume excellence. Our kids stepped up to the plate. They were yes. phenomenal. Our yeah. teachers stepped up to the plate. They were phenomenal. Our school leaders have stepped up to the plate and been phenomenal. And so what we need to do if we're really going to create a culture of change is shift from this culture of assumed incompetence to a culture of assumed yeah. excellence. And if we snapshot what we've all been able to, what we've all witnessed being achieved in our school communities over the last few weeks, that should galvanize those communities and our policymakers to ensure that we try to recalibrate that towards yeah. the excellence. I mean, it's been the most incredible natural experiment that I don't think in controlling systems like education, they would have ever said, hey, teachers, work from home. Um, <laughs> hey, students, uh, we trust you to kind of progress. Uh, you know, uh, there's been this unbelievable um, given over trust because they just had to, a removal of the hierarchies that not only run culturally, but you know, the physical buildings you mentioned picks up before, but the physical buildings themselves, like, I can always be checked up on. There's, you know, the, the big offices here still. The head teacher, the principal walks down, looks into classroom. Am I where I need to be at the right time? School assembly is called. A few teachers are late. They get a bit of an eye. You know, you need to be here to model the right things. And, you know, there's these institutional norms, right, that have just been uh, paused and, and, and challenged for a period of time that you could never imagine a kind of change agenda that was a, uh, a kind of, um, you know, desirable kind of, hey, let's do this because we care about it so much that it could have been pulled off. We needed this burning platform. And I think, you know, I love, you know, I know you've probably got to go and I appreciate the time, but no you know, to close out as we, as we think about this and as you've taken us into, I, I guess what uh, those of us, let's say, who, who are at the moment not on the front line, you said before your wife is still, you know, each day right now leading a school community, uh, you and I aren't doing that work. And so we've probably got a little bit more bandwidth right now to think about the, the, the deeper shifts that are actually going on while our colleagues are operationally, you know, surviving and trying to thrive through all of this. But, you know, as, as you think about whether uh, in Australian context, we're probably going to get back to school a little bit earlier than Europe uh, and England, um, you know, we're moving that way and people are talking about, you know, this idea of new normal. And, you know, I know we've talked before, you know, the new normal, we want to be new and better, right? But there's this kind of tendency as well, particularly under a controlling system to sort of, let's snap back, like, oh, quick, as soon as we can, let's get schools back to what they were doing and the ways of working that were happening before. I mean, have you got any kind of, thoughts uh, about how leaders, whether it's system or school, as they come out of the crisis management, and we know many of our colleagues are still there mm -hmm. and are going to be there for a while, but as they come out into the kind of from crisis mode to opportunity mode, like how do you want to push their thinking or what would you want to encourage them to think through in order to learn from, from this uh, incredible set of innovations but, that we've seen? There are two things I think. One is, um, that if what we do is we always measure what we do the way we've always measured it, yeah. we'll end up doing nothing other than snapping back. Hmm. You know, it, I, I often use the analogy of if you told the world's most innovative chef, someone like Ferran Adria, right, to go and create a brand new dish, 
but then you said to him but it has to look and taste just like this chocolate cake yeah what's Ferran gonna do he's gonna snap back into being the most efficient he can be at making how he knows to make that chocolate cake to the very best it can be right so the first is what we've talked about a lot here is that we have to focus at a much more human level on our children you know we have to ask fundamental questions about what we've been living through, um, whether it was the bushfires, whether it's COVID, whether it was the financial crisis yeah. uh, 12, 13 years ago. We have to look at a far more human level and go, okay, how have we done on a human level in all of those unexpected moments of shift and, and accelerated change, right, and challenge? How have we done? Um, and, and what do we need to do better and then say, okay, so what we need to do is focus our development in our schools on making sure our people are prepared to be better at doing that stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember when I started at Grange, one of the first fundamental questions and challenges I put to the team was, what do we want our kids to look like as human beings when they leave us, right? Because yeah. the academics are there, but, but let's focus on something bigger, right? which is what do we want them to look like as human beings? And actually, if I was in a school now or a policy level, that yeah. would be the first question I'd be asking. What do we want our kids to look like when they yeah. leave us? And more importantly than that, in a future that is clearly going to throw more and more curveballs at us, what do we need to, them to look like as human beings? And I think the reason it's a deliberately abstracted question is there's plenty of space. But yeah. I think what you then do is then you start to you start to evolve strategy and system, but you start to evolve it in a new way with an open goal, right? Because that's going to change too, right? Sure. What our kids sure. are going to need in 10, 15 years is not going to be what the kids need in 30, 40 years or, or whatever. So it's, it creates a sustainable process of constant start with question, evolve strategy. Yeah, and, and a central and, and then, question, not a tactical question. Like, exactly. What are the, what are the ends of education? What's worth... Yeah. Uh, developing as, people. Um, yeah. And then as leaders, your job actually is to audit your progress against your own questions. Hmm. Right. So one of the great roles for a leader is to, I mean, I remember Eric Schmidt saying to me, he was the executive chairman of Google for a long, long time. He said, you know, our greatest challenge was keeping our people focused on our founding vision and values. And, the conf and my greatest challenge was giving my team the confidence to believe that we could continue to progress yeah. on that. You know, their founding vision to organize the world's information, make it available to everybody, and by so doing, diminish evil. So in other words, the democratization of the virtual space, sure. right? And he said, the greatest challenges I ever faced were when, when we started to obsess with what other people were doing, and it made us divert mm -hmm. from our our three key questions organize how do we organize the world's information yeah. how do we make it accessible for everybody how do we diminish evil and he said actually as a leader that's my greatest challenge to keep my people focused on what we believe in and to to make sure they have the confidence to know that we can pursue that endlessly yeah. and i think in a way that's really where we've got to come from when we return back rather than snap back i love it you know i think that for all of us in our individual lives um this idea of not just snapping back, going deep. And then in our family lives, you know, my wife and I were talking about, you know, <laughs> what are the things we miss? Like we, we just are longing for in certain, and we just can't wait to have those things back in human connection. But, you know, what are the things that we're going to try to keep out, right? Uh, and uh, what are the things we're going to make sure that we, you know, 
shift. And I think those things aren't just tactical things in family. They're, they're essential. They're, they're essential questions. What type of human life do we want to live? What kind of family do we want to be part of? What is, what is worth? Uh, what is worthy? And uh, we want to do it personally uh, and in family. And I think, you know, you and I probably both agree that even though um, you've worked in lots of different organizations, uh, probably schools are, you know, the most or one of the most oh. important institutions we have in, um, you know, modern society and uh, they're normative, you know, the decisions we make about what's worth uh, building in young people, um, they matter and they have ramifications. So look, mate, uh, I know uh, you've probably got to get going uh, in the morning. Uh, well, not going anywhere, sorry to rub it in, but you know, you might have to move <laughs> from one room to another. Um, I yeah, am I'm enjoying go and take a vacation in the lounge. Yeah, I'm, I'm loving some of those memes that have coming out. You need, we all need a bit of a laugh. Uh, in you know, people <laughs> going on, um, saw people who have a treadmill at home with a suitcase pretending to you know pick up the suitcase <laughs> off it and all the things people are doing. But hey, look, um, appreciate you spending a bit of time in conversation, sharing a bit of your life journey, the way your, your thoughts around change have, have been shaped in both trying to synthesize your actions and then take real uh, action to, to, to transform a particular organization, a particular context. Uh, if people out there wanted to be in touch, mate, um, uh, where would they best find you in, on the big wide world web? Two ways, I suppose my website, which is just richardgerber.com and on Twitter, which is at Richard Gerber. I'm very fortunate. I think I'm the only Richard Gerber in the world. So you'll find me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, just, just put in Richard Gerber. And if you find That's annoying, though, one, because if people don't follow you, you can't say, oh, well, they're probably accidentally following the other one, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, right. But listen, just connect. I mean, Twitter and my website. But, all right. Uh, and if anyone finds another Richard Gerber, G-E-R-V-E-R, -E -E just let me know. It'd be great to connect with them too. Well, Richard, <laughs> um, over the last, well, oh, I think we first got together about 10 years ago or so, uh, you know, and I think that was another time where we were getting to, to work alongside and serve some Canadian leaders. And as you said, we got to do that again uh, a little while ago and, uh, and enjoy a cold beverage and a nice view. Uh, mate, um, I cannot wait to be back together again in person. But uh, in the meantime, this has been a great substitute and uh, I really appreciate you making some time to connect. And the challenge is next time, uh, even if we're not out of isolation, I need a really good uh, Zoom background. Uh, to at least let us feel like we're somewhere exotic and wonderful again. What do you reckon? You're on. I'll tell you what, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll take one of those places we visited together and we're fortunate enough to be drinking a cold beverage in Canada. Let's put that behind us, minus the bears, which we'll talk about the next time we talk. And uh, listen, seriously, it's always a joy. You're one of the most amazing people I know. And uh, just spending time with you energizes me, my brain, and... Uh, Listen, I've loved it, seriously. Um, thank you. And well, thanks, here's brother. to the next time we get to Stay see safe. All the best to your amazing wife uh, doing uh, the core work on the ground. Uh, and yeah, let's connect soon. Take care. All right, big love. See you, mate. Bye.